What is crack-a-lackin' Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you without my fantabulous co-host Adam Frommel, who was a little bit swamped at the moment, so we have a programming shift. I'm going to record a solo mailbag. We have Keith Smith from uh, Spotrack coming on later this week to talk about all the eliminated playoff teams and our biggest questions for them. This felt like a good time to do a mailbag then. Uh, but first, let me remind you all to please continue rating and reviewing us wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't subscribed to us, please consider doing so immediately, also wherever you get your podcasts. If you have done all that, consider recommending us to friends, family members, acquaintances, coworkers, anyone on the internet who you think really enjoys NBA basketball and would like a little bit more thorough yet personable modestly insufferable NBA coverage in their life. We really do appreciate everyone who does that. Remember to follow us on the socials. We are at Hardwood Knox on Twitter and TikTok at Hardwood underscore Knox on Instagram. Follow us on YouTube, Hardwood Knox. That'll come right up. And then also join our Discord. The links to all these, including Discord, are in the podcast um, description. So head over there. Want to throw a quick quick thank you out to our listeners as well. Uh, I hope you all know how much we appreciate you collectively here, but I always get very, I guess, excited or appreciative when we do deep dives into one or two teams and you guys just keep showing up, keep downloading. Our numbers don't suffer when we do a deep dive into the end of the Grizzlies Timberwolves series like we did last week. And I've been on like team specific podcasts where they say, uh, and probably a little weird, not great for my ego, of course, that when they have the national people on that their downloads just sort of plunge. And so it's really cool. And you all know that I think the team specific podcasts are super important. I just appreciate that we're able to go in on one or two teams per podcast, if need be. And you all just continue showing up, downloading, listening. It really does mean a lot. Uh, it gives us flexibility. And we try and cover so much of the league jam packed into a bunch of episodes. That's why we do these sort of just... I don't want to say generic, but like every Eastern conference team, every Western conference team and cover it that way. Uh, and I enjoy covering the league that way. But again, I just wanted to throw a shout out and, you know, clearly it's the guests. I'm glad you guys are tuning in for the guests. We had Keith Parrish on for that Grizzlies Timberwolves series, but I just wanted to throw that note of thanks out there before we dived cannonball, the belly flopped into this mailbag had a lot of great questions, which again, I sent, I sent out the solicitation at the last minute because this was a, a pivot on our part. My life is one potential perpetual pivot, excuse me though. So that's totally fine. I'm going to start with a question about the Celtics Bucks series, since this could technically become pretty dated, um, you know, once it's answered, but the NBA chicken, uh, who's currently the NHL chicken on, on Twitter, that's at least the name on Twitter's handles at NBA chicken. What adjustments do you see the Celtics making to counteract the Bucks' defensive scheme? They don't like tanking that many threes, any rotation adjustments. Yeah, Boston just chucking 53s in game one was the sight to behold. Uh, I think some people are of the mind that they're going to hit their threes at a, at a higher clip. Uh, there might be some players who will. I mean, you know, Jason Tatum ended up four of nine, even though he started slow. Jalen Brown, three of nine at 33.3%. Maybe that comes up. But Boston shot about 35.6% on their open and wide open threes in that game. And Ime Adoka didn't want them to shoot contested threes. They really didn't. 45 of their 53s were um, open or wide open. And that's sort of in line with their regular season mark. That 30, I think they were around 36 plus percent on those open and wide open threes combined. And I don't know that you have the the type of shooters to just bank on this being much better on a game to game basis. We know there's high variance in a Marcus smart performance where 
yeah, he might go one of six in game one, and then he could go, you know, five of eight in game two. Uh, but he could also then just drop off immediately from there. So I don't think you can just count on the Celtics continuing to prop up this three-point volume uh, and then hitting more of their threes. Again, there will be games where it happens. I just don't know how much you can bank on. Looking at the potential adjustments, uh, I am I don't want to say I'm at a loss for words because I, I do have some suggestions or musings on the subject, but my God, Milwaukee's defense was just a hellfire. And it wasn't, and, you know, people pointed this out, but when you were watching, like, this wasn't just like, let's just have Brooke Lopez drop all the way back. Like, he was coming up higher. Milwaukee's defense was ultra-aggressive. They were great at uh, forcing Tatum and, and Jalen Brown to their offsides uh, to sort of make them into these uh, decisions where they were rushed as well. Um, none of the passing lanes were just ever open. And it's so weird to think that, you know, change your perception of the series where I had, I think I had Celtics in six, maybe it was Celtics in seven, but I have the Celtics winning the series because Chris Middleton's out. Uh, I don't know that his absence improves Milwaukee's defense. A lot of people pointed out that they believe he's overrated on that end. I think he's like net neutral to a slight positive, And I think he just gives you another body to throw at Jalen Brown or, or Jason Tatum. Uh, you have Giannis really going, uh, taking on the Jalen Brown assignment though in game one, and that pays dividends, but you, there's just so much credit to Milwaukee's defense, including Javon Carter, just all over the place. Uh, the Nets are probably watching him like, oh, we were paying that dude to not play basketball for us, not only for the rest of this season, but also next season as well. Uh, I don't necessarily think that Boston can do much to sort of bust through Milwaukee's defense. They want to get to the rim more often. We saw them get to the rim at will against Brooklyn, Milwaukee's defense, regardless of like what types of coverages they're going to throw out, is kind of built to stop that. I think some of the things that they could try, I do wonder if he's not going to hit his threes. Uh, is this a Peyton Pritchard series? I just, you know, that gives you someone to go after on offense as well, but he's someone you would need to count on to, to hit those open triples. I think we already found out based off that stint in the first half of game one that this isn't going to be a Daniel Tice series, even kind of. Uh, you also have to probably figure out if Jalen Brown doesn't have it going, how do you better navigate those minutes without Jason Tatum? Because there were stretches, I can't remember if it was the third quarter, the end of the second half, um, or in the, excuse me, towards the end of the first half where uh, Jalen Brown was in the game without Jason Tatum and Milwaukee was able to just extend their lead uh, pretty, pretty substantially. And the, you know, the, the Celtics to also their credit, I think that might've, that might've mirrored that moment. Let me look at my note. Yeah, that might have mirrored in the moment that Jay, like that lineup was going up against a Bucks team that didn't even have Giannis on the court. And so I must be talking about uh, a third quarter stint. I don't know why I don't have that marked down. So you need to play those minutes a little bit better. I'd be curious to see if now we're going to get to what would be my potential solutions. Uh, do you try to just downsize and create chaos if you're more chaos, if you're that concerned about what the Bucks are doing, uh, get to a point where maybe – Brooke Lopez, not someone who's typically played off the floor, uh, but they forced the Bucs into some interesting decisions, or maybe they're less willing to play uh, Bobby Portis and Giannis together. You might prefer to have Bobby Portis on the court, though, if you're Boston. He played, he's had just better moments defensively than like, people would expect. But if you're Boston, that is someone that you can go after. Also, what does downsizing look like for this team? They can go the one big route. They've done that a bunch. So you won't have two of Horford, Williams, or or Time Lord Horford and Grant Williams, since they both have the same last name, you won't have two of those three guys on the court at once. And they're more than willing to do that. I'm thinking more along the lines of getting drastic, where it's just you're playing without a big. And if 
is that something that you're willing to try? I think that hurts you on the glass. But if you're a team and look, Boston didn't do this a ton during the regular season. And I don't know if this was just them feeling rushed against Milwaukee and not wanting to have to go up against them in the half court. Uh, They really look to push the ball after defensive rebounds in game one, at least relative to what they're um, they would normally do. And, you know, Milwaukee, they're going to have guys that can make plays and get back anyway. And if you don't want to rush, it might sort of behoove you to uh, hope that you can make up the rebounding gap that maybe a Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum really help you out there. And then just get into your sets with more ball handlers, having smart um, and white on the court with you. In addition to like, do you round that lineup out with, I don't even know at this point, is it like, is it a Grant Williams that there's a facsimile of a big, uh, the Grant Williams minutes were not spectacular versus Milwaukee either. And so that's going to be, that's someone who holds up um, fairly well on defense across different matchups, but not, you know, Al Horford's still going to be better in those, those situations than him. And so I definitely think you need to skew um, even more heavily towards the, the one big combinations. That might be something they could, they could really look at. I would also wonder if this is a Derek White series to where I don't want to say he's felt underutilized. If he's not going to shoot like an astronomical clip from three, like, yes, he's fine as a sort of this secondary passer connective tissue of the offense. Then he's going to give you some, some juice on the defensive end, but just have sort of another ball handler option. Uh, Can you run pick and rolls where Jalen Brown um, or Jason Tatum are used as the screener and you're trying to open them up for the open threes or to get Marcus smart going and, and diving towards the basket more. That's something that the Celtics are going to probably have to um, try to do is just up their number of just off ball cuts or having guys dive towards the rim that way. And Milwaukee's still going to be able to do better jobs of they, they stifled a lot of those plays uh, in, in game one. But if it's smaller guys who are making beelines towards the basket, does that give you a little extra North South jet fuel um, to, to go up against Milwaukee with? I honestly I don't know. And this, you know, they'll, the, the Celtics will adjust. I still expect this to be a, a better series. And you can look at like, they could they also go the other route? I mean, you're looking at Milwaukee and it's like, they didn't shoot like this astronomical clip from three themselves. They had Wesley Matthews um, go one of six from beyond the arc. Giannis had a really good game and it was probably one of his like least efficient games of, of the season. Uh, Nine of 25 from the floor, six of 11 at the foul line, just someone who's such a monster on defense. And he had 12 assists as well. Uh, he's just absolutely spectacular. So you can't even like you won the three point battle ostensibly in this by 18 points from behind the arc. You were plus six made three pointers there. Uh, do you look at trying to junk up this series even a little bit more where it's, are we really going to lean into this bigger stuff? Uh, in which case I still think you cut even the Pritchard minutes and, and maybe just get bigger and give yourself more of, of Derek white, uh, as well, looking at the defensive end, I think probably the the thing that they might be able to focus on is how do we attack the minutes in which Giannis is um, on the bench? And I don't know how many minutes that's going to end up being. He plays almost 38 in a game that you know, Milwaukee had pretty handedly towards the end. Um, can you count on him being on the bench for, you know, eight to 10 minutes a game? Maybe. Um, do you try to get away from, are you, you know, you can't really extend a Jason Tatum any further you definitely or you shouldn't be extending it out Horford any further logging 36 plus minutes in this loss we've seen him play a ton of minutes in the postseason just overall but you just sort of consider that whereas if Giannis maybe the Bucks just mirror his minutes but do you try and get away with having Tatum and Brown on the court at the same time just for even a brief spurt where Giannis isn't on the floor to try and make up that gap uh, you're certainly going to need I think if we're looking at one player that you say hey he's probably going to need to play better on offense and it's Marcus Smart 
Uh, well, it's, it's Jason Tatum. I think that's the bigger one because he needs to be more willing to shoot and to take the kinds of shots that he was during the regular season. Going up against Giannis, though, I think you can understand that this is probably someone who's going to be, you know, towards the bottom of just the percentile of, of his performances. Uh, no, he shouldn't have seven turnovers every single game. And Boston as a team, like, yeah, you can do a better job limiting them overall. It was, you know, I, I think Jalen Brown had just the, was really the only egregious outing on this. You're probably going to need more from Marcus Smart as a decision maker, both away from the ball and, and on the ball, whether it's, are you trying to get Tatum and Brown just involved in more away from the ball actions? You're going to need to count on him as that uh, ball handler, unless you want to bestow that to Derek White. And then I would just argue that because we've seen it more, like, can you get Marcus Smart going as the screener a bunch? try to get him moving downhill where he can maybe be put in positions to finish. And then there's of course the variance of they need him to shoot better than one of six from three. And they need pretty, they need him and Brown ideally would shoot higher clips from three. And then you're going to get the same level of performance from Horford and Tatum when you're looking at, Oh, they combined to go uh, eight of 18 from beyond the arc. That's totally fine. It's like, you know, basically 40% over 40, that's over 40%. So, um, those are the things that I'm watching for. I just, the Celtics will find a way to break through because the Celtics are a really good team. Their defense is absolutely spectacular. Um, I think they're just probably going to have to get weird with their lineup combinations. Or again, maybe, I, I, and you know, Jared Weiss of The Athletic, I think was writing about this. I think maybe we see like more stuff happening a, away from the ball other than like these driving kicks or these, side-to-side possessions from Boston. So this series is suddenly even more intriguing than I thought it was going to be. Shame on me for underestimating Milwaukee without Chris Middleton. I mean, they've just been on an absolute scorcher since he went down. And so, you know, they might not get as great performances from a a Grayson Allen or a Javon Carter night-to-night basis, but sometimes it just comes down to, like, you have Giannis Antetokounmpo, and then, like, you have really steadying, try-hard role players with – I don't want to call Brooke Rope as a role player, but even Wesley Matthews, like someone you can count on to work his ass off on defense, and even Bobby Portis giving you huge minutes. And you sort of know what you're going to get from Brooke and uh, Drew Holiday on a night-to-night basis. And that just gives you this sort of even keel medium um, at which to start from. So this series is endlessly fascinating for me now. And we're just going to have to keep an eye on what ends up happening with you know Boston making adjustments specifically on offense. And I would think it, a lot of it does come with maybe the way that they're running their their lineups let's get into more generalized questions now that are well some of them have to do with the playoffs uh but Braden asks who do you want to win not who should win I'm assuming they're talking to the playoffs so I typically as someone who just wants great stuff to write about or tweet about or to follow and talk about I do root for chaos but if we're getting into the hashtag agenda here I did pick the Suns to win the title at the beginning of the season uh, I doubled down after picking them at the beginning of last season. So, you know, if I, if I want my pick to actually pan out, I definitely want the Suns to win. It would also be, you know, Chris Paul getting a ring to kind of put some of the lazy postseason discourse around him to bed would be great. Uh, also, Devin Booker specifically seeing him win. Uh, it, it does feel like some are still shocked at how good he is uh, or they get uncomfortable when we talk about, oh, this is someone who has really improved defensively. So that would be, um that again that would be that that's totally narcissistic on my part because i did pick the sons to win the title but that's the team like the 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 energy is great i think the other thing here too would be to look at potential matchups and i still want to see sons warriors in the conference finals i think when you sort of look at what's happening in the east with the joel and injury 
I don't know that I would want to see the Sixers come out of the East right now. It feels like Suns versus Celtics, a rematch between the Suns versus the Bucks. If we can assume that Chris Middleton would be back, those would be the most interesting to me. It's not that I'm not intrigued by Miami, but you know, with Jimmy Butler banged up entering the semifinals, does playing game one, having the stuff with Kyle Lowry. I do wonder if there's, you know, more variance in how poorly they could technically play against a better team. And a lot of that energy against Philadelphia in game one, it, it felt like Miami went out with James Harden the night before is what it looked like. And they still found a way to pull away and, and win. I don't think you could go wrong necessarily though, in the team that's coming out of the East, uh, I would probably just prefer not if I had a rank, I'd probably rather see mm, I'm gonna say Bucks, Celtics, even though I think the Celtics beat the Bucks, Bucks, Celtics, followed by the Heat, and then the Sixers. Um it, it, I think if I'm looking at an East team that I would like to see win, I don't know. That's like I don't really have a preference of who comes out of these. I mean, Giannis is one of the most likable players in NBA history. We've already seen the Bucs win, though. I just, I guess I don't have any, like, there, there's too much to like throughout all this. There would be, it would be absolutely chaotic if James Harden ends up in the NBA Finals after forcing his way um, off the Brooklyn Nets, having Joel Embiid get injured and miss some time against the Heat. Um, that would be mind-melting. Seeing Kyle Lowry get another ring in Miami, that's something I could totally enjoy. I don't know if I would appreciate the Heat culture tweets that follow, but I don't think you can go wrong in the East right now. The Warriors or the Suns are the teams that I want to see back in the finals for the West. They would put up the, the most fight. But, yes, yeah, selfishly, the Suns are my title pick at the beginning of the season. I love Devin Booker. Mikhail Bridges, that's someone that I would absolutely run in front of a moving truck for. Um, and, uh, I mean, Camp Johnson, just his story, the way DeAndre Ayton's improved. Like, that team to me, I know opposing fans are not advocates of – you know, Chris Paul, some people don't like watching him, but I, that's a team that I could very much just the, the energy that I, I really enjoy um, having followed this season. That's a team that I would really like to see win. So we have a few questions on the jazz. Surprise, surprise. We're going to get into more detail with this when we do our, you know, all, like what's our biggest questions for each team eliminated from the playoffs heading into the off season. But I think these questions are fair to everyone wants to know, and they're asking them. Um, T Bloom from Discord asks, what's the best option for the Jazz this offseason? What's the most likely outcome for the Jazz this offseason? I say best option is to trade Donovan and keep Rudy and Snyder. The most likely is that Rudy is traded, Snyder fired, and they rebuild around Donovan. Uh, Jake G asks, why? Well, so the, yeah, we'll, we'll go to Jake G next since it's tangentially related to this. I would agree with the, with the overall take of this figures to end with Rudy Gobert getting traded. Snyder's not going to get fired uh, if he leaves it's because he wants to leave. Uh, so let's make that clear. And ideally, yes, you would keep him, but he's been offered a contract extension for multiple reports uh, and hasn't signed it. And so that's largely out of, out of their hands. I don't know that trading Donovan Mitchell is necessarily the, like the more preferable course. He is younger. Uh, his contract, look, for, for whatever you want to say about Donovan Mitchell, his contract is going to be just better. When you look at someone who can create from the point of attack is younger and both he and Rudy Gobert have a player option for 25, 26. And that final year, Rudy Gobert's $46.7 million and Donovan Mitchell's on the, on the hook for $37.1 million. Again, that's the stage of their careers at which they are at, but you have someone who's younger and in theory does more for you in the playoffs offensively. Um, I, that's not to say that I don't think you could go the route of 
oh, let's move Donovan and try and retool around Regal Bear. But if you move Donovan Mitchell, like you need to restructure your entire offense because he is your number one option. And I feel like that's harder to do than cobbling together um, what would be a strong defense if you're trading Gobert and maybe you're getting back a good big man prospect or just a solid big man in general. And is there any way that you're getting other perimeter defenders as part of the process? Your defense is not going to be better, but it could just be deeper in the sense that you don't just have this one generational talent plus Royce O'Neal, who was not great in that Maverick ceiling, plus nobody after that. I get that there are red flags. Uh, people aren't happy with the lack of improvement from Donovan Mitchell at the defensive end. It's all fair. I would argue from this standpoint, most likely I think what happens is um, Snyder leaves, Rudy Gobert is traded, Donovan Mitchell stays, at least through in the next season. What I think should happen is if you're going to trade Rudy Gobert, why are you keeping Donovan Mitchell at that point? Like if you're going to trade one of these guys, you're not getting better in any in any case. And Donovan Mitchell, I would say specifically, like that's the package that you're not flipping Donovan Mitchell for another star. Like you could, yeah, if you wanted to get like a Jeremy Grant or even if like Atlanta probably wouldn't love the fit, but they're like, yeah, we'll give up John Collins for like, you're not getting, you're not getting better for that. Um, and I'm sort of of the mind. Yes. I know that it, there's the realities of the market and we know how much Ryan Smith has bought this team for and wants to keep fans in seats, but like the jazz fans, like they're super loyal. Like those are people that are going to put butts in their seats. And I'm sure they would understand a pivot if both their stars are unhappy I just don't know what you do. Like you're rebuilding regardless of who you trade is my point. You can call it a retool, a renovation. I think you're more likely to move Gobert and be better while keeping Mitchell than you are to have Gobert and still be better while trading Mitchell. Um, the on-off data can support different facts there, but Rudy Gobert is about to turn 30. He can't anchor your offense. And even if it's better for next season, I don't know long-term that you are in a, a more favorable state by keeping him over. Donovan Mitchell. Uh, so there's the potential to have that lateral move where, oh, if you trade Rudy Gobert for like Clint Capella and stuff from Atlanta, how much worse are you? I would still argue significantly worse because of how good Rudy Gobert is, but you're better than keeping Gobert and trading Donovan Mitchell to the Knicks for a bunch of picks and like some of their young players, like quickly and all the picks, even if you're getting RJ Barrett in that, uh, you're still in the, in the throes of a rebuild. Rudy Gobert's not taking that team into title contention. I think if you're moving one of them, moving both of them should absolutely be on the table, especially if Donovan Mitchell is unhappy there. There's uh, the, the optics for the league. And as we talk about the next collective bargaining agreement, if, if Donovan Mitchell figures out a way to get himself off this team um, with technically four years left on his contract, three guaranteed years, the fourth is a player option. Yeah, th that's not great. But if you're on the fence of where you think that you would move Donovan Mitchell to keep Rudy Gobert, then you shouldn't be technically attached all, all that attached to him. And so that's the that's the school of thought I learned. I do think you should keep Donovan Mitchell if you're choosing between the two. Rudy Gobert is probably the more valuable player. Uh, Donovan Mitchell gives you more ways to build out your team because he can at least be, like, even if you trade him, like, you just don't have that long-term number two option. You're saddled with finding the number one. And, like, there's that trickle-down effect there. It's not long-term. It's not Boyan Bogdanovich, Jordan Clarkson, Mike Conley. Those are, that's just the reality you have to come to grips with. I still think that the Jazz should probably be open to moving both of them if they think they're going to move either of them. And the rumor as we're recording this uh, was that Rudy Gobert was going to give the Jazz a, you know, a, a me or him ultimatum. Rudy Gobert came out on Twitter and like kind of rebuked that. Uh, he tweeted every day, there's another rumor. 
Uh, if I'm the Jazz, that doesn't change my thinking. Like Rudy Gobert, neither Rudy Gobert or Donovan Mitchell is, is good enough at a championship level to give that the team that ultimatum. Like I'm not paying, if I'm the Jazz, I'm not paying attention to that insofar as it's true. But it just, it feels like it's time. This core is stale and you can look at it one of two ways. Did the Jazz fuck up? by not doing anything substantial at the trade deadline other than cutting their tax bill? Or was that sort of a harbinger of, we don't really trust this nucleus to begin with. Why are we going to double, triple down on it after we've already doubled down on it um, by investing more long-term pick equity in getting a Jeremy Grant or a Harrison Barnes, even if those avenues were open to us. Um, so it could just really show a lack of faith in what they were going to do, what this core was capable of, even if it was slightly better in the first place. Would I rule out the Jazz running it back? I almost at this point would. And I think because you can argue that Quinn Snyder seems like such a flight risk, even losing him would be like this huge material loss. So yeah, to wrap that up, I think the most likely outcome is Rudy Gobert gets traded, Quinn Snyder leaves, and they keep Donovan Mitchell. If I'm the Jazz, though, I'm would I consider getting rid of Mitchell and keeping Gobert? I would not. And that's not anything against Gobert. It's just at that point, like you're you're entering a a, a a fuller scale rebuild um, just based off Rudy Gobert's age and then what you need to have your offense really hum. Uh, so yeah, that's where I'm at with that. Jake G asks, why do the jazz not take a trade of Gordon Hayward, PJ Washington, James book Knight, and 15th overall for Rudy Gobert, assuming the requesting trade rumors are true. I would argue even if the requested trade rumors aren't true, like the Hornets are going to be a team that's linked to, uh, to Gobert. And so I have a, another question that from Anthony Merlacci asks, what are your favorite fits for Gobert? This may be easier. Who is top five or bottom five? Because every team gets better with Gobert. I love the phrasing of that. Your team is not getting worse because that's Rudy Gobert. And if it does, it's probably franchise mode practice based off what said team gave up or what they put around him. So before I get into my favorite destinations or kind of tackling all the teams that I see, I'll go from worst to best that I could see going after him. Uh, the Hornets package it's tough. You have Rudy Gobert owed four years, 170 left on his deal. And that's something where I think that's where you expect him to fully opt in that final year of his contract when we get there based on how old he will be. That doesn't quite feel like enough, even if you're factoring in that Gobert's market value is going to be lower than his actual on-court value because of the, the contract. Uh, Gordon Hayward, I doubt Utah wants him back after the way that he left there. You have two years, 60 plus million left on, on his deal. Maybe there's a third team that's willing to take him on, but are they sending Utah anything substantial? Because as of right now, PJ Washington is extension eligible. So that's someone you immediately have to turn around and reinvest in. James Booknight probably has minimal trade value, even though he was a, a lottery prospect last season. Uh, he had some moments in summer league, but like the Hornets didn't rely on him that much this season. So again, it's one of those driving the car off the lot situations where the pick is, you know, his where he was drafted has more value. Um, before he was actually selected. And so that's come down quite a bit. I don't know if you're getting Rudy without including Kai Jones and in just to give the Jazz a, another big man prospect there. Uh, I'm, I'm also assuming that they're going to want you know more than just one first round pick. And it's different if you have a blue chip prospect you're sending them, but neither PJ Washington nor James Booknight is that blue chip prospect. Charlotte specifically is also a little bit hamstrung because they have that first round pick uh, that's lottery protected until the end of time that's now owed to Atlanta and or it, it's not a lottery protected at the end of the time, but the protections on it are a little bit 
weird. And so are the Jazz willing to accept an offer where they're not getting picks until further down the line and maybe they can even get 13 and 15 from Charlotte this season? Uh, but are they okay with accepting that? Uh, I think at minimum you need to have both 13 and 15 in here and you probably need to find another taker for for Gordon Hayward. Uh, and there might even need to be like future first beyond that, which will be contingent upon uh, their obligation to Atlanta actually conveying. So my favorite or what I think the most sensible destinations are, there are probably like there are more teams than this, but I have jotted down, I think it's 10 teams or nine teams that I could see going after Gobert. And I have them, um, I have them listed in like order of, I don't like dig the fit to, I, to, I love the fit. And it, I didn't, I threw trade assets basically out the window here. The Kings, we'll start off with them. I could just see them. Look, Rudy Gobert, something, someone shiny. Uh, he really could anchor a defense. Are they like, what would they do to try and get Rudy Gobert? Would they want to pair him with the bonus? Are you trying to use the bonus as primary bait there? Does that even make sense for Utah? How much of your picks are you giving up? Uh, they're just a team that I could see trying to get involved. I don't think they should. I hate the idea of Gobert there. Uh, you're either left with the bonus or Rashawn Holmes, depending on who they're giving up. And he doesn't fit with either one of them. And maybe you're trying to give up both of them in whatever deal. I don't even know what the structure of a trade looks like, but because the Kings are so bad on paper and in actuality defensively, uh, I could see them getting involved. Don't think they should. People have mentioned the Raptors. I guess he fits the, Rudy Gobert fits the motif of just defense, defense, defense. And, but like he doesn't fit the theme of, oh, we want these like six, seven to six, eight to six, nine guys who can fly around everywhere on the court. And then even if you just want to have that rebounding presence, that generational rim protector, uh, maybe even someone who gives you just like lob threats, someone who's going to really like devastate out of the pick and roll and set by the hardest screens on your team. Like your floor spacing is kind of all over the place already. And you, you feel like you want for half court creation. Rudy Gobert doesn't give you any of that. And what are you giving up to get him? Like you're just, I'm not giving up Pascal Siakam for Rudy Gobert, especially considering how well Siakam played this season. I'm just, I'm not doing it. Would I give up OG Ananobi? I guess because Scotty Barnes is there and all these defensive options you have, great. Is Utah willing to accept him plus salary filler as the, the primary package structure? I, I, I don't know. Um, I just don't love the offensive fit there. I've seen the Bulls suggested by some where it's like, hey, you offer Vooch, Patrick Williams, whatever picks you need to attach. Definitely sort of gives them a, a ton of defensive appeal with Caruso and Lonzo Ball. Um, if they're both healthy next season, you also would still have Io DeSumo unless you have to give him up as part of that and maybe a Javon De Green. There's a lot of different things you could do defensively there. I would not love the, the floor spacing. And I know that Vooch was not shooting the ball great for most of this season, but he's at least someone who can space the floor. And when you have DeMar DeRozan on the court, uh, that is incredibly important. And, and like, yeah, Lonzo Ball is a higher volume three-point shooter at this point. Alex Caruso is really not quite there yet. So you're kind of at in a situation where you might have three below average shooters on the floor at any given point in the game. And then two of them just aren't going to take those threes. Uh, I just feel like, you know, after giving up what you did for Vooch, um, knowing that you have that draft pick owed to Orlando down the line, that's just not something I'm considering. I don't think it elevates their team just enough. They need more of like a star powered wing than they do uh, like a pivot at the big man spot. And you know, depending on what happens with Zach Levine's free agency, I fully expect him to resign with the Bulls on a max. Uh, are you more incentivized to do the Rudy Gobert trade? You have to be more incentivized to make this uh, a trade with urgency. I just don't like the idea of Gobert in Chicago. Golden State, I feel like probably isn't talked about enough. They might win the title this season, so so maybe that's why. But like, 
they have the Andrew Wiggins contract. They have James Wiseman. There's Kaminga, Moody. They can offer some future picks. Their 2024 pick is owed to, to Memphis right now as part of that Andre Godala salary dump. So there will be that to consider. They could build some interesting packages and maybe you don't want to give up Wiggins. Um, and if you don't, then yeah, you, you're sort of like that whole thing is scuttled. And Wiggins has had some pretty big moments for them over the past few postseason games. But it would just be something to consider if that's, you know, they have James Wiseman sort of sitting there hasn't he's barely played over the past two seasons does have some mystery box appeal if he's healthy if Utah is looking to hit reset or just believes that it can make you know a sort of a more lateral move by going from Gobert to Wiggins and uh, Wiseman next season you get another big on the cheap to play a bulk of the minutes and then I'm assuming other uh, assets would be involved in there from Golden State's perfect perspective you have there's Moses Moody and Kamingo like I mentioned that's something to just look at. Uh, I don't love the Gobert Draymond fit together. Uh, and he's, I know Draymond, Draymond has played with Looney would be my sort of counter to that. And neither of those two are floor spacers, but it's a little bit different when Looney's been in the Warrior system for, for so much. Is Gobert going to be able to make the same type of offensive reads? Uh, I don't know, but the Warriors do at least seem to have like some commitment to getting into at least a more conventional pick and roll attack. Otherwise, I don't know why they picked James Wiseman in the first place. So I'm making a lot of inferences there. Just a team. Again, they're not towards the top of my list. I have the Blazers coming in here. They are. So I, I did end up listing nine teams, and they are number five on this list. Uh, I don't. I love Damian Lillard and Rudy Gobert and Anthony Simons, like the idea of them together. I don't think the Blazers are at the point where they should do that. That being said, they could have a top lottery pick in this year's draft. Are you willing to give that up for Gobert? You shouldn't be. I want to make that clear. However, if you're committed to competing with Damian Lillard, rebuilding around Damian Lillard, whatever you want to call it, he's 32. Like the rebuild can't last that long. You are obligated to at least search out these bigger swings like this. Looking at the overall package, um, aside from this year's pick, what else are you giving up? Uh, is there a use of Nurkic sign and trade there because the market's so barren of cap space? Utah maybe wants a big to just slot in the middle and in place of Gobert. Again, these players do very different things. When you start from there, you have Eric Bledsoe's partially guaranteed salary. You can fully guarantee it um, to sort of help grease the wheels of this trade, depending on the extent that Utah would be rebuilding. I'm not looking at including Josh Hart if I'm Portland because you're trying to maximize your immediate chances and to give up Josh Hart and a top pick um, to get Gobert in addition to whatever salary it takes. Like that sort of puts you in like, it's again, Gobert, generational defensive talent, but you still do need like wing depth on this roster. They're not chock full of established uh, contributors after moving CJ McCollum, Larry Nance Jr., Robert Covington, and Norman Powell at the trade deadline in favor of just a, a bunch of flyers and, and mystery boxes and, and unproven prospects. So, you know, you have Justice Winslow you could throw in there as well. Maybe Nas Little has some appeal there. Uh, Greg, Brown, Greg Brown the third, excuse me, super athletic. Uh, so there are packages that you can make, but it has to be more of a future like driven package catering to that for Utah. And look, their pick is projected to come in at, uh, I think, number six this year if the lottery odds hold. That's if you're Utah, like that's a pretty good springboard into whatever you're doing, whether you're also trading Donovan Mitchell or just looking for a retool around, around him. Uh, the next team that I have on this list, and now we're starting to get into places that I actually in, would enjoy seeing Gobert. The Hawks have become like a fairly popular destination. Clint Capella and what? Uh, I'm not giving up DeAndre Hunter in this if I'm Atlanta. Not because... I think he's indispensable, but again, you're trying to optimize the team around Trey Young for winning immediately. 
it sort of defeats the purpose to get rid of yet another wing while having an incoming big here. That's so important that when that wing in Hunter is so important to your defense, even if he didn't make the progress that you wanted to see from him this season. And if you're Utah, like DeAndre Hunter's extension on the ball, would you want him on your roster? Sure. Like if it's someone you could get, but you don't want to have to view him as the centerpiece of a deal. So are we talking about future picks and Capella? And then you have salary filler. Do they want another Bogdanovich? They have the, um, Gallinari salary is partially guaranteed for next season. So there, there are, are ways to include him in this deal. Uh, there's also just like, I really like Jalen Johnson. That's someone you talk to take a flyer on. Uh, they could also take a flyer on Sharif Cooper as well. And so you can build a lot of interesting packages. There's also just Clint Capella and John Collins. Like that's a framework if there are picks included or whatever that you could work out with Utah for Gobert. I don't know that, you know, I get the train of thought of, Oh, if we have Capella, really how much worse are we defensively with the current perimeter talent on your team? I'd probably argue a lot worse. And so you need to find ways to address that. Uh, would Atlanta, you know, that's someone that you could sort of slot in if you're, whether you're rebuilding or trying to be more of a, a lateral moving team, Atlanta though, it doesn't make sense to make this trade unless Capella is headed to Utah or there's a third team involved. There are different levels of packages there. So like Capella picks Jalen Johnson, Sharif, uh, Sharif Koopa, Onyeka, Kongwu, uh, and then even if John Collins is on the table, like maybe that's where the third team and fourth team comes into play, a team that really wants John Collins. There's just a lot of options there. And I think that Rudy Gobert next to Trey Young is a no-brainer. You can just look at how many um, times that Trey Young connected to uh, Clint Capella or even John Collins, for that matter, on assists this season. I think he does a lot for them on defense. They still need more perimeter talent there. But if you if you still have Hunter, maybe you bring back DeLon Wright. Um, could you still turn around and make another move just because you do have a lot of middle rung salaries on this team where do you enter the Jeremy Grant sweepstakes? Uh, and we have a question on the specific to the Hawks coming up. I'll, I'll follow it up right after this actually. So that we're still sort of topical. The next team I have, this might sound weird and people have killed me for suggesting miles Turner be traded to the senior season, but just the Grizzlies. I mean, Rudy Gobert is not someone who gets matched off the floor and Steven Adams did in the playoffs already. So, if you're including Steven Adams, the primary salary matching fodder, Memphis has all their own picks moving forward. Um, they have Zaire Williams. They have Golden State's pick in 2024. They also have Utah's pick. Uh, they have Utah's pick this season and that, that Golden State pick. So, yeah, there's like a lot of different packages they could build if, if Utah's okay with going and sort of pandering to the future more. I don't think you get, you're not getting Desmond Bain. You're not getting Jaron Jackson Jr. And you're certainly not getting John Moran. Everyone else I imagine would be on the table. You want Brandon Clark, you have Brandon Clark. Xavier Tillman, um, Xavier Tillman is there. If you want Dylan Brooks, like you're trying to make more of the lateral play and you're viewing this as, okay, Steven Adams could technically play for us, uh, but maybe we don't view him as the centerpiece of this deal, but it's at least someone who's competent center. Do we sign another big who's perhaps a better, uh, less schemable defender and try and move forward that way? Dylan Brooks is really going to help out your your defensive mojo there on the perimeter. Or maybe do you want a De'Anthony Melton to strengthen sort of your backup guard minutes and give you just a, a go-getter on, on defense there as well. There is so much that Memphis could propose. I don't love what Rudy would do to Memphis's floor spacing. At the same time, like they just figured it out with Steven Adams and Jaron Jackson Jr., his volume from three, even when he's not hitting them, gives you a ton of flexibility. Don't know how much he improves the um, half-court offense specifically in a playoff setting when you're looking at Rudy Gobert. That being said, just imagine the defense here. If you're going to have Rudy Gobert, Jaron Jackson Jr. in the same front line, uh, you're still going to have one of, if not both, of Dylan Brooks and 
Anthony Melton. You could bring back Tyus Jones. You still still have the flexibility to bring back Kyle Anderson. Desmond Bain uh, has really stepped up defensively for a, a lot of the, the playoffs. That that defense is already pretty terrifying, and there's like a chaos to it. Colbert gives it like a structure, but like this sort of impenetrable structure. That's probably my most out there team for this exercise, perhaps, but I would absolutely enjoy seeing it. Checking in at number two, I have the Charlotte Hornets. The fit just makes too much sense, and we already outlined what the different packages could look like. You might need a third and fourth team to take on um, the Gordon Hayward salary, or if Terry Rozier ends up being a part of it, you need so much. You know, you just want shooting around Gobert that I think keeping Rozier is more important than than Hayward. I'm just Rozier is going to be dependable when it comes to availability at this point. We know Hayward is not. Um, I would absolutely give up both my first rounders this year if I'm Charlotte. I'm not a fan of them upping their timeline when Lamelo Ball is only entering year three. I get the I get the urgency though. If you really are concerned about him becoming disenchanted with the franchise, you've moved on from James Borrego already. Um, so I I don't want to see them. And I, I to the extent I don't even know what mortgaging their future looks like. If you're not trading Lamelo Ball, then I guess it's kind of like all right, what are you really giving up or sacrificing? And you don't want to have so many of your first round picks into the distant future accounted for, even when factoring in the, the obligation to Atlanta. I would give up a distant first plus these two. And then filler um, salaries with PJ Washington for Gobert. I include Kai Jones there as well. So again, the math I'm just throwing out. I'm literally, if I'm Charlotte, I would be okay throwing the kitchen sink if it's only we're talking about one distant first. If you're getting into the realm of two, in addition to everything else, that gets a little iffy. Um, and not a little iffy. That gets mega iffy because I don't know if Rudy Gobert makes you a contender. He certainly makes you more interesting defensively. Um, certainly could be a good fit with Lamella ball. When you look at the types of passes, he seems ready to throw, uh, but everyone can, I don't, there's no one here that's indispensable to them aside from Lamella ball. Some are going to suggest a miles bridges sign and trade. I don't see Utah being about that. And you also need miles bridges cooperation there. I imagine even with the, the limited cap flexibility for teams this summer, he'd be able to find uh, a destination that he might prefer or at least an offer sheet um, rather than work out a sign and trade to a team that's maybe rebuilding or doesn't plan on having him like in this, this huge role. So I would view a miles bridges sign and trades out of the question. I don't mind if he and Rudy Gobert front court, as long as we're on it, like miles bridges needs to shoot better on jumpers, but he's just, he's super explosive. And if you think that he'll up his clip on threes, the stuff he could do off the dribble, you could run quote unquote, dual big pick and rolls with these two. If you really, if you really wanted to, um, to at least test it out, even though I don't necessarily consider Miles Bridges a big. His also malleability positionally on defense becomes a lot more valuable if Rigo Bears behind him because there does feel sort of like an aimlessness to his capacity to switch at this point. But yeah, it's it's look, any prospect aside from a mellow ball that they want, the PJ Washington, uh, James Booknight, Kai Jones, they're on the table. 13 and 15 should be on the table. And at one of the distant first round picks, and again, you have to structure it because they have the obligation to Atlanta. At this point, I'm not ruling it out for Charlotte. And I think Rudy Gobert makes them exponentially better, albeit not quite a contender. I would still argue they need like a stronger perimeter body than having a Kelly Oubre Jr. as their their best defender on the perimeter, or maybe you view it as you know Cody Martin. That's that's fine. Maybe you consider Jalen McDaniels. I would just argue that that's uh, just going to create even more problems. So can you turn around and still figure out a way to trade Jeremy Grant while making the deal for Gobert? You have the salaries to make things interesting, thanks to that. Um, parts of the guaranteed deal of Ubre, like expiring at 12.6. You have Terry Rozier at 21.5, Hayward at 30.1, Mason Plumley, uh, partially guaranteed on a $9.1 million expiring contract next season. 
PJ Washington's at 5.8, even, even James Booknight at 4.4 million. Like there's just a lot of money to shoehorn in here. So if you can turn around and make another deal, yeah, you're mortgaging more of your future at that point, but you're upping the defense and it seems like you want to make this a win now timeline around the mellow ball. I would argue against the absolutely nuclear route, but there's no denying the fit of Gobert in Charlotte. And my final team, this is the obvious one is Dallas. Like the fit there is just, it's perfect. You could play him um, with Maxi Kleba at the four uh, alongside Gobert. Like that's Kleba provides more than enough stretch there. He would probably be the single best defender that Rudy Gobert uh, had since this past season. I think Royce O'Neal is going to be above Kleba, but having Dorian Finney-Smith, Kleba in the same like rotation, you've already just beefed up your defense um, like past the rim, past the restricted area, way more than Utah ever did this offseason. Where I've started to run into issues, I don't know what Dallas is giving up here. Um, they have the 26 pick, okay, so you can give Utah an immediate pick, but they owe their 2023 20, um, selection to the Knicks is top 10 protected. It will convey, let's just assume. So then you're looking at the soonest first round pick you could convey in this deal, aside from trading this year's draft pick after the fact is 2025. And then you don't have any other blue chip prospects uh, on this roster. Maybe, maybe Utah wants Maxi Kleba as part of this deal. And that, you, you know, you can't break, that's not a make or break. Shouldn't be a make or break for Dallas, but like using Dinwiddie or Bertanza salary or Powell's salary, Bullock salary, Maxi Kleba salary. Maybe they're even intrigued by Dorian Finney Smith as he begins that four year, $56 million extension next season. Like those aren't, those aren't names that are going to be viable centerpieces for a deal with Gobert. There is Jalen Brunson. I don't think Utah's going to want to acquire him in sign and trade negotiations. Maybe this is a situation where you're sending Jalen Brunson via sign and trade to another team and getting more draft picks to arm yourself with. But unless you're just, unless Utah wants number 26. Plus, you know, to get out, to get more salary flexibility in the shorter term, just because Powell comes off the books after next season. Uh, Davis Bertans only has two years left of his deal before that um, uh, non-guaranteed one in the final year. Spencer Dinwiddie only has a partial guarantee the year after next. So there are shorter term salaries you could exchange Gobert for, um, or even a Reggie Bullock, technically an expiring contract next year when you look at the, the structure of that. The same with Kleba, but like number 26 and then a 25, 27 and 29 first round. Like if you're Utah, does that even like wet your whistle knowing that how young Luka Doncic is, um, you can include swaps in there as well. It feels like this would take a third team scenario, but it's very clearly the team that makes the most sense for Gobert. The defense is already fairly strong, especially if you're going to keep Dorian Finney-Smith as part of the equation, like you're in business and you have Reggie Bullock there. Some of these players might need to be moved. I know that including Maxi Kleba, but the Luka, uh, Rudy Gobert connection makes all the sense in the world. Um, and it, look, ideal, not ideally, but like if you're, I, because I don't think Utah wants Jalen Brunson, like there's a scenario where you're keeping Jalen Brunson as part of this too. Maybe even Spencer Dimity as well. So you're not losing your, anything from your ball handling hierarchy. Uh, as, like aside from, and I think, look, the Dimity addition has been great from that perspective. Jalen Brunson making the, just th this ascent um, this year, even from where he was at during last regular season. That's huge. I'm not saying you could afford to lose one of them, but if you need to move Jalen Brunson to get a pick or players that Utah is going to want in a sign and trade, and then you could send them to the Jazz, like that's, you know, it's workable. You would still, I think, want a higher, another higher end offensive option. And you're now funneling your money into a player in Rudy Gobert who doesn't provide that, but it just makes all the sense in the world. Um, if I'm Dallas, I'm probably not concerned about short circuiting any part of my future. Like if Utah wants that pick special I laid out, I might do it, especially if they're, will they take back Tim Hardaway Jr.'s contract? Um, if they're taking back Davis Bertans's 
is contract. Like, yeah, that, that's something I would absolutely consider. So those are easily my favorite destination. Well, that's my favorite destination for Regal Bear. I love, of all the ones I listed, the only teams I'm actually probably in love with the fit would be Memphis, Charlotte, and Dallas. Like, those are the teams that I really want to see Eagle Bear on. I thought about the Knicks for a second, but they're so just, like, ass backwards in love with Donovan Mitchell. Uh, that would be that would be counterintuitive to whatever they're um, – to whatever vision they have. And I don't, when you're, when you're what they are, Rudy Gobert makes you better, but like you need to, I think already have someone who face of the franchise material in place. And maybe you think that's RJ Barrett. Do you think they're getting out of that trade without including RJ Barrett? Sure. But RJ Barrett isn't decidedly that player yet. And it's certainly not Julius Randall. So um, yeah. And you could make cases like Portland. I don't mind the fit, but I just don't, I don't see him Rudy Gobert doing enough to be like, Oh, Hey, like we're, we're really a threat with, um, with Damian Lillard to, to win the title now. Brooklyn, I thought of this as a joke, but like the Ben Simmons, Rudy Gobert framework, um, if you're figuring out a way to get Royce O'Neal back as part of that deal as well, maybe you're including, you do have some, you know, um, you have a future pick from the Philly trade. You can include Philly's pick from this year's draft as well. I wouldn't hate it. I just don't see the Nets doing it. So I didn't include them. Let's move on to another question. This one comes from uh jake g also asked well actually let me get to this uh let me get to this hawks question really quick we have this one two hawks questions one from j dows 94 what would be the best realistic trade target for the hawks to make a consolidation trade this offseason and then garland riley asked uh josh a to the hawks um so a would definitely not be like the consolidation option but if you're just really desperate to beef up your perimeter defense um a does give you some real like um mobile girth there i'll call it it comes at the expense of your offense. Maybe you really don't care. He should come super cheap. Uh, he's a restricted free agent this summer. I can't imagine that Minnesota is like going to be, they might not even uh, tender him a qualifying offer for all I know. I can't imagine that they're desperate to keep him. Looking at the consolidation trade though, we already like sort of outlined the, the Rudy Gobert stuff. He's someone they should consider. Uh, Jeremy Grant is probably a popular one. And that is one that Jay Dobbs actually suggested in, in tandem with his question. I, I don't like, Yes, Jeremy Grant for sure. I don't know whether I consider that a consolidation trade. Like, is it someone that you're willing to give up two of your younger kids for, like Okungwu and Jalen Johnson and Sharif Cooper plus another pick? I could totally see that. Is Jeremy Grant someone giving up John Collins and then something for? That's sort of more what I view in the vein of a consolidation trade. And the player that I think Atlanta needs, like a really strong perimeter presence who could uh, on defense who could potentially be a secondary ball handler, those guys just don't become available a ton. I, I thought Derek White was a good target for them before the, the Boston trade. I doubt the Celtics are all of a sudden going to want to look at moving him. Um, so it gets difficult there. I, th- I think Jeremy Grant is the most logical option. I don't think looking at the trade market, what it could become, I don't know that there are these other options where it's like just worth consolidating for. Maybe there are opportunities that creep up where – you know, if, if Orlando makes Jonathan Isaac available, that's someone that Atlanta could try and look at. I just don't know what I would be giving up to get him. We Again, we already mentioned the Rudy Gobert uh, situation. That's probably like the realm of what you should be looking at. Otherwise, maybe you're probably looking at more along the lines of like singles and doubles. Um, you know, Victor Oladipo is a free agent target for this team. I think can make a lot of sense. He has shown a lot of positive signs in the playoffs shouldn't cost more than the mid-level exception. And if he does, there are sign and trade scenarios, but you should probably also just steer clear uh, of him in general. Uh, but yeah, the trade market just doesn't seem conducive to Atlanta. Let's make that clear. Has the ammo to just go out there and make sort of this sizable splash. 
I don't just like, if you told me Shea Gillis Alexander was going to become available, that might be perfect for this team, even though he's probably become a little bit overrated defensively at this point. Um, but he's not going to become available. And so like, who are you really going after? If Bradley Beal becomes available via sign and trade, like that's not someone who's going to move the needle for you. I think Jalen Brown would be great for the Hawks um, or even a Brandon Ingram type. Neither of those players are going to become available. And that's sort of the issue you run into. Would would Brooklyn like look at trading Ben Simmons for what like the Hawks could offer? I just don't know that Atlanta is going to want to give up more for Ben Simmons or as much for Ben Simmons when it couldn't pry him away from Philly. They were very clearly looking for an established star. And perhaps Brooklyn looks at it as like, Oh, if you're giving us Clint Capella um, and like other stuff, like maybe that's, maybe that's enough for them. Uh, I don't, I do not know, but like, that's, you know, I don't even know if that's like a, for, for Atlanta, it's I, I like the idea of Ben Simmons there, but we haven't seen Ben Simmons play basketball to be in over a year um, by the time you get there. And so that's something that to monitor. Malcolm Brogdon would be fairly interesting in Atlanta. I just don't view him as a consolidation trade. Like that's not something I'm giving up a ton of value for. I don't think he'll nudge your defensive needle in the right direction too much. He can certainly play off Trey Young in certain lineups. Uh, is he a much, is he an upgrade over DeLon Wright? Offensively, sure. Defensively, no. So I'm, if there's an, I, there, there needs to be an opportunity that I'm not thinking of or naming to arise, or maybe one of the ones that I already ruled out coming to the table. If you have one, J-Dobbs, other than Jeremy Grant, well, I think that's the most logical one. You're, you're free to, to get at me there. Uh, let's move on to this question from Jake G had the other one of which team, who's a better chance of coming out of, this is not Jake G's question. Sorry, I'm all over the place here. Jake G asks, who's a better chance of making the playoffs next year, the Pelicans or the Wolves? I think it's the Pelicans. The Wolves might clearly be onto something. Um, Anthony Edwards is only going to get better. Carlton Towns is fantastic, even for all, even for how the discourse goes with him. I just don't know like what's happening. They have nice players on that team after them. Jaden McDaniels, Jared Vanderbilt was huge for them this season. I just don't know uh, the D'Angelo Russell going into his contract year. He had a good season, was all over the place during the playoffs. When you just look at how deep the West is, it feels like this is a team that could wind up falling out of it, though. And New Orleans, you could argue, has the wild card of Zion Williams since health Zion Williamson is an all NBA caliber player that they did not have this year. And they're just getting him back to a team that has CG McCollum, Brandon Ingram, Herb Jones, Jose Alvarado, Jonas Valanciunas is there right now. I also think it's easier for new Orleans to make a move. That's not nuclear that winds up drastically improving their team as opposed to it'll be harder for Minnesota. If you put new Orleans could use some shooting, uh, I floated the idea of, you know, they could still use also a rim protector as well. So if you plug a rim protector next to, next to Zion Williams, or even if you're just upgrading um, the, the guard position where it's like Gary Payton, the second is a name. Let's, for example, is going to be a free agent. And if he's going to cost your, your mid-level, uh, he's perfect for a team that has Ingram, McCollum, and Zion, three guys that would prefer to operate on the ball. He had a, Payton had enough of his threes this year uh 35.8% on 120 attempts to where you could argue he at least doesn't shrink the floor but he doesn't need to orchestrate the offense he's going to give you a ton on defense just imagine him and Herb Jones within the same defense like that's the type of signing or move where I think it substantially improves New Orleans chances of doing damage in the west because they're just getting back this whole NBA caliber talent I don't think they should be out on a Miles Turner trade still either because his fit and now especially when we looked at how they played it's it's absolutely perfect when looking at their personnel. I don't see that same path 
for Minnesota. And even if you say, oh, maybe the Nets are going to be shopping Ben Simmons again, or should they get in on the Jeremy Grant sweepstakes? Uh, it's a little harder for them to build out packages. And if you're adding Jeremy Grant to this team, and let's say it's costing you Jaden McDaniels um, and or Jared Vanderbilt, like how much better are you really? Maybe you disagree with me there that they're substantially better. You look at this Western Conference though, and the you know the current playoff team specifically, some of them are going to have to drop out. And who who are you picking to drop out next season? It's fine if you want to pick Utah, but Dallas, Golden State, Phoenix, Denver, those are all teams that should be back. I would like the Grizzlies. Maybe you think they're still this flash in the pan, but are, should we expect them to get a lot worse? Uh, the Clippers are going to be healthier as well. And so we just named seven teams that, and like, what if the Lakers don't suck? They have LeBron and AD. I'm just, what if the Lakers don't suck? And then you have Minnesota, then you have New Orleans. Who knows how much better is Portland with Dame? What do they do over the off season? They're sort of a wild card. And the Spurs are a wild card because they're so firmly in the middle. Uh, it's, they're going to be more than one tough cut. There's a chance that neither New Orleans or Minnesota makes the playoffs. I just think that, New Orleans getting back Zion and the progress they showed with their defensive hustle under Willie Green midseason. Brandon Ingram, you know, very, like he was the best player on the court at times in that Phoenix series. That's a big deal. You have CJ McCollum who makes so much sense for you. The emergences of Herb Jones and, and Jose Alvarado. Uh, it just feels like New Orleans is in a better immediate situation than Minnesota. Uh, next question comes from Anthony or all over the place today. Excuse me. Uh, next question comes from. JT Alexander, who has the better chance of coming out of their conference, Heat or Warriors? That's a great question. I think it's the Warriors, just because when you look at the East, I mean, at this point, you are you have to just win two more series to get out of your conference. Maybe I'm oversimplifying this, but their range of matchups is just more intimidating. You have to go through Philly and then either, but I guess Philly without Embiid, though. Yeah, but then you have to go through a Boston or Milwaukee. I'm just going to say Miami because I think that they're on – Having to go through Milwaukee or Boston, I mean, I don't know. I might change my answer to this. Yeah, I, I think I think it's still Miami. I think they are closer to the level of Boston and Milwaukee. Those are all three teams that are neck and neck and neck. And yes, we know that the Heat have to beat Philly first. Then looking at the Suns are such a well-oiled machine. Uh, they can maintain their peak for longer than any other team in the league. Now, is the Warriors' peak better than the Suns' peak? What we see in the playoffs, arguably. Uh, can Golden State continue playing at that rate for more than you know minutes at a time? Sometimes that's really all that they need. Um, I just I look at Phoenix as just so deep and and domineering and just so like comfortable with itself and knowing how to make adjustments, knowing how to play with each other. Uh, I I think they're just the single best team in the league, and to have to go through them, uh, if I'm Golden State, that seems like a tougher role for the Warriors than the Heat having to go through the Bucks and North Celtics right now. That's just, that's where I'm at. And maybe that's flawed thinking there. Christopher from Discord asks, you suddenly find yourself GM of the Nets. What trade do you make involving Kyrie Irving to build around Simmons and KD? I don't know which team would want Kyrie Irving. He has a player option. And so he has to want to go to his next team. Um, and I just, I honestly don't, like you could talk like the basketball fits. Like, yeah, there are teams where he would make a, a ton of sense for. We still want to play for the Knicks. Uh, I just don't know like what you're actually getting for him. And uh, that's just like, you know, would you want like an Anthony Davis trade with the Lakers if they were willing to entertain that and reunite Kyrie and LeBron in LA? Um, and like the fits are kind of hard. Like where would Kyrie Irving want to play? Uh, you could, like do the Clippers want to have to deal with him? And if you're the Nets, like, do you like the idea of 
Powell, a 2029 pick and like other stuff like a Lou Kennard or, or a Terrence Mann, uh, maybe like that's something that you could look at. I just don't, the way that the Nets organization is run, I would be shocked if they want to consider a trade for um, Kyrie Irving. And then again, even that market just becomes so limited because he dictates where, where he would go. And so, yeah, if you were going to move Kyrie Irving, I'd probably look at like the Clippers. Uh, I honestly wouldn't look at the Lakers. They want to give you picks. I doubt they're willing to give you Anthony Davis. Um, that's the team. And then I don't even know if the Knicks have just like enough intriguing win now players to where youngsters excuse me and picks plus like do you really want evan four day on your team alec burks on your team uh i don't know if that like what's the whistle and i don't look the clippers with powell and terrence Mann, and then they can now officially trade future a future pick beginning this uh summer i don't know if that's even enough so i don't if team like if he didn't have a say in where he was going um, and that wasn't a factor th- that opens up your options considerably. I just don't see that, that situation out there. And just for the record, I think that Kyrie Irving winds up staying in Brooklyn. Uh, next question comes from Simon asks 82 games is too many. And we have a better product. If we cut it down to 58 games, but the owners would never accept that. What's the shortest regular season they would accept. And will we only see a shorter regular season if a midseason tournament is added to make up for it? Yeah. So. I don't know what the minimum that the the teams themselves would accept and also the players themselves, just because like their salaries are tied to league revenue too, which is tied to you know what teams are making at the gate and from home games as well. And if you're shortening that to, you know, even if it's, even if it's 72, that's five fewer home games. And I think the last I saw that the league said like 40% of the, the revenue that they get is like contingent upon like the, the home games, the operations and the stuff that goes into it. Um, I think reasonably, I know Daryl Morey has said, I don't know if that's where you're getting the 58 number. He's been a proponent of 58 games during the regular season and shortening the playoffs. I don't think we ever get to that low. I think this is a situation 60, like let's split the difference and say 66 feels like maybe a more optimal number. Um, 66. Can you schedule more sort of series uh, with teams so that you're cutting down on the travel as well? I would say maybe 72. Um, and you could do the same thing with that. Like, can you figure out ways to trim down the travel by having more of these, you know, um, best of three midseason series uh, or just, you know, just the midseason series in general that we saw during the past 72 game season, 21, 2020, 2021. I do think whatever they shorten it to, it will be coincided with the midseason tournament as a way to sort of drum up interest and sell that they're going to be able to make up revenue from alternative means. But even, I do think, even players and teams would push back against giving up like those 10 games. And then also it's, it's five home games per team there just because of the money they'd be sacrificing that you can argue that they'd be able to, to recoup it, especially if you're going to run the midseason tournament. But I think even the proposals for the midseason tournament was we'll shorten the regular season by four games and include the midseason tournament. And so you're almost expanding the product there. while trying to add the element of maybe the one and doneness that Mark madness has um, in the middle of the year on top of the, the play in tournament. So I 66 to 72, if we're talking about what would be my drop dead number, drop dead number to where maybe the evidence is overwhelming, or maybe they see that they can recoup enough of the revenue from the, the, the forfeited games that they move, that they move on from there. I just, I struggle to see it happening. Let's see what the midseason tournament proposal looks like. I don't know if that four game, even, you know, shaving makes a difference down to, to 78, but if, if the league is concerned about players and load management, they have to figure out a way handle that i think the other element that goes into this is historical records and perspectives how much harder is it to 
assign value to, you know, single season records when you're looking at per games, if you're shortening, shortening the season substantially, but then even just the, the, you know, the all-time leading scores when you're looking at that. And if you're all of a sudden at a 58 game season, um, as opposed to an 82 game season, like how do we treat those records? And I think the league likes the idea of having players chase history. It's hard enough to sort of compare different eras, but like having the similar schedules across the board, um, that's certainly something that works in favor. And so I would be, as of right now, maybe I just cancel the vision. I would be fairly shocked if we see the league drastically cut down on the, the number of games, even regular season games, even with a midseason tournament. Uh, Dofu asked, do you think the Raptors could soon become a championship contending roster? I do. Uh, they need like shooting and feel like they need another creator. Like that's what they feel like they're, they're short of. And I don't know that it needs to be a star because you have Fred Van Fleet, you have Scotty Barnes, Pascal Siakam, OG Ananobi. If you're asking whether I think there's like a trade out there that they could make, if Bradley Beal wanted to come to Toronto and for agency, that's someone who I think if you're keeping Van Fleet and Siakam, like you're all of a sudden, uh, and Barnes, like you're, you're all of a sudden there. I don't know that they need to go that route though, just because I don't know that the player that they would ideally need is available. I think if you just put more even specialty shooting on this roster, or I floated them as a Victor Oladipo destination in free agency, just sort of another creator who might be able to hit enough of his threes. I think it makes a, a big, big difference um, on the trajectory of this team. I don't know if that's the way they're thinking. They seem to value this model of having the like-sized players and some of the projects we saw how invested they were in uh, Precious Achua's development this season. But I do, I think that they could absolutely become a championship contending roster soon. I picked them to beat the Sixers in round one. I said on multiple interviews, podcasts, radio shows, if you told me they came out of the East, it wouldn't surprise me. I was definitely underestimating the extent to which their offense could struggle how they're built. And that's a way to where when you can't rely, when things, and look, they can get out on the break, they can hit the glass hard. But when you're not able to do those things consistently, in the postseason setting, when things slow down, I think Siakam has done a great deal to improve in those situations. Maybe Scotty Barnes gets there. Van Fleet provides value there as well. I just don't think he's that guy. Um, they need to address that more than anything in my eyes. And that's a that's a solvable problem. I don't think you need to go get another star for that. And it's certainly not Rudy Gobert who addresses it. Uh, let's make this the last question. Julian Morales asked, Does re- do rebounds per game even matter anymore? I don't think that they don't matter. There's just more ways to dig in to them. Uh, how many of those rebounds are contested? What's the player that's getting them? Is it designed so that a, play, a certain player can grab rebounds where maybe you're looking at, and this has always been like the Steven Adam argument during his Russell Westbrook days, like you probably need to just look at his box outs. Like those, the hustle stats on how they're boxing out players matter as well, um, even if you're not grabbing rebounds. But rebounds do still matter like grabbing defensive rebounds it's a way to end possessions um, of the opposing offense and also a way to get into your offense if you have someone who's grabbing a rebound um, and then being able to run the break or throw an outlet pass like a Nicole Jokic or Kevin Love that has inherent value I think we're past the days of looking at oh Andre Drummond led the league in rebounds per game or so-and-so led the league in rebounds per game and just thinking that that's you know incredibly important I don't, but I don't know that there's like everything in basketball matters. It's like the triple double argument. Like there needs to be additional context um, relayed around it, but there's, there's like, there's an importance to rebounding. And I look at how, what the Raptors and Grizzlies did specifically this year. I mean, even the Pelicans at points, like killing it on the offensive glass has this inherent value to the offense, creating those second chance opportunities, higher quality looks around the basket. 
that stuff absolutely matters. And, but so do, um, and again, it's the defensive rebounds as well, grabbing contested defensive rebounds, but so does boxing out. Um, and so does just actual defense where you're causing those, those missed shots um, to end the possessions and, and forcing turnovers. There's a lot that goes into it, but if you're looking at total rebounds per game to try and find the best rebounder in the league, I would argue that no, that's not, that's not the way to do this. Like there doesn't need to be a, a, a rebounding title to me feels different than a scoring title. Um, if, if that makes any sense, like those would be inherently more valuable to begin with. But do you think that like, as an example, is Giannis Antetokounmpo the best rebounder uh, that I've seen? No. Um, but the opportunities that he creates by grabbing 11.2 defensive rebounds during the playoffs per game, that's absolutely huge. And it, it leads the league this year, but it has a lot to do with minutes played the type of role he's playing on, on defense and then how the bucks want to get into their offense after grabbing those boards. Uh, so those, those things to me matter. I don't think rebounds don't matter in general. It's just not something I'm inclined to look at the numbers specifically and say, and draw any profound conclusions from. Thank you all for sticking with me through this solo mailbag. Hope you enjoyed it. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, I leave you with a shout out to the one, the only, just appeared in a playoff game for the Dallas Mavericks, even though they lost. It was still glorious. Frankly, Okina. Okay.